So a few months ago, I got a call uh, from Matthew's school nurse that Matthew, my uh, nine-year-old, had hurt himself. And we didn't know what was wrong. We just knew that we had to go and pick him up and that he was in a lot of pain. And, but it seemed impossible that it could be bad. He had essentially tripped on the playground. And that's all we understood. But, but the fact was we didn't know. We couldn't see. He had hurt his foot, he was in pain, and we didn't know what was going on inside that foot, right? You guys can all relate to that. So we needed something pretty clearly. We needed someone or some way to see inside what we could not see and to tell us what to do about it, or better yet, to do something for us about it. We needed someone who could see much deeper and more accurately into a place that we couldn't and who could do whatever needed to be done about that situation. Sure enough, we went to the urgent care, and what was an achy foot turned out to be a, a real problem. It was a fracture in the fourth metatarsal bone of his foot. And we had to get a cast. We could never have understood that without the x-ray. And we could never have done what needed to be done to heal Matthew with their own resources. For the whole first chapter of Romans that we've looked at for weeks, Paul has been equipping the Christians with an x-ray machine to see what the doctor says about the condition of the human race. What ails us is something we could not see ourselves. We don't have the equipment. But God sees deeply. He sees everything. So he tells us in Romans 1 what's wrong. And after telling us what's wrong, in later chapters, he's going to tell us exactly what he has done about it to heal us and how we need to respond. But as Romans 1, as we saw... Our God has told us that just like me and Jen wouldn't have really guessed that Matthew had really hurt his foot. We didn't really think it was that bad. God has seen much deeper than we could and shown us that our situation is much worse than we thought as a human race. Romans 1 tells us that we've rejected our creator as a human race, denied the truth about him, denied the honor due him in our hearts, and have lived lives not of thanking him, but of rejecting him. And God's response to this rejection of God is his judgment. But in Romans 1, it is just like that x-ray machine showed us what we could not have guessed. It is a kind of judgment that we wouldn't have guessed. In Romans 1, God gives us over to what we want. Rejecting him and his ways, our hearts increasingly crave and desire ways foreign to him. And that's what we spent several weeks looking into. The selfishness, the greed, the gossip, the lust, the one-upmanship, the pride in self, the need to put others down or control others, enmity, fighting, and on and on. Paul uses words like brutality and heartlessness. Arrogance, these things replace the gentleness, the humility, and the generosity that God intended for us. 
And not only do these disordered and corrupt desires dominate our hearts, but God says that we end up, by the end of Romans, he says we end up approving it. We end up being proud of what God says we should feel shame about. We call light darkness and darkness light. All this is the effect of God saying, you want to go your own way? Then I will give you over to your own way. God shows us with his x-ray what's going on with the human race. And it's not a happy picture. And through Paul, he is trying to really light up that x-ray scan and really show us. And he's really trying to say, do you see this right here? This is the cause of all of your pain. You've got to do something about this. But suppose that after we see that x-ray, instead of saying, oh, yes, please, give me the cast, give me the cure, give me what I need. Suppose we say instead, that's not my foot. Those aren't my bones. I mean, that's someone else's x-ray. I don't have that problem. Well, any doctor who heard that, who really cared about his or her patient would be at great pains to double down and make sure the patient really got the message. That's what chapter 2 of Romans is about. In chapter 2, Paul speaks to this rhetorical patient. He's not necessarily talking to you and you and you. He's talking to a, a rhetorical you. It's a, it's a literary device that was used in Paul's day. He's putting a hypothetical person on the stand and saying, hey, you... You might be able to fit in this frame of mind. People that I'm writing to, you might have these questions. Well, I'm going to create this person. I'm going to speak to him. In chapter 2, Paul's hypothetical patient is saying, these must be someone else's x-rays. That's not me. In fact, the person is saying, hey, did you see that woman next to me in the waiting room? Did you see her limp? She's the one you need to be talking to. It was awful. Or, did you hear the coughing? That kid sitting right next to me? It was gross. That little kid is the one you need to talk to, not me. Of course, the doctor in this case is the Lord working through Paul, working hard to say, friend, it's not that little boy. It's not that older woman. It, it's you. It's you. You are not healthy. You have a terrible injury. I must help you. You need to really understand your injury or else you'll never embrace my cure. And so Paul spends the rest of two leading up to three trying to help us all as a human race understand how significant our injury is so that we who have the cure would embrace the cure all the more, would long to share the cure all the more, would rejoice in the cure all the more, would pray for opportunities to be a means of him curing others. So chapter 2 is, is, is a response to everything he said in chapter 1, and it's really a preamble. The first few verses in chapter 2 really cover the ideas in the rest of the chapter. So pay real attention here to chapter 2. He's going to unpack the rest of it in the chapter. I'm going to read you guys at least the preamble here, and then we'll look at different parts of the rest of the chapter. So read this with me. You don't have to read it out loud, but I want you to focus on it as I speak it to you. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And of course, the things he's talking about is everything he said in chapter 1. Whether it's sexual immorality, or greed, or harshness, or gossip, or malice, bitterness. God says, do you suppose... Oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Although God's wrath has been evident in all of chapter 1, in the handing mankind over to their own desires throughout history, God's judgment in letting us go our own way, this handing over, Paul says, has been done with great patience. Just as pain was assigned to my son Matthew that he needed help, so even God's handing people over to their sinful desires is not done simply to destroy them. He waits for them to wake up to their calamity and come to him. Paul says he is rich in kindness, rich in forbearance. That means overlooking and rich in patience because he does not want to have what Paul calls the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And so Paul now is going to tell us more for the rest of the chapter about the surety and the totality of this approaching judgment. So my next point this morning after the preamble is God is going to judge all people. God is going to judge all people. Verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation, that means great trouble, and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This section of chapter 2 raises some hard questions. Who are these people, first of all? I mean, when I read this, I'm still trying to figure this out, to be honest, along with theologians for 2,000 years. Who are these people who receive eternal life through seeking glory, honor, immortality? It is possible that these are Paul's reference, 
which he'll explain later potentially, to those who have been saved, not through their works, but by Jesus. These three words he uses, glory, honor, immortality, they could be thought of this way. They seek glory, Paul says. They want to be conformed to what chapter 8 calls the glory of the image of God's glorious Son. They seek honor. Essentially, they want God's approval through the blood of Christ and their changed life. They're not seeking man's approval, but God's. They seek immortality. They long not for this world, but for the eternal life of knowing God forever and belonging to him forever. But, but as we go, I think that we'll probably see that it's better to see this group as a hypothetical person that we've talked about earlier. In other words, I, I think it's better to understand these people as those who, if they could live godly, sinless lives of holiness and love, this is what would be their end. Glory, honor, and immortality. But I think we'll see by the end of this section of Romans, there is no one who lives this way in such a way that they would receive this of themselves from God. The second thing I just want to talk about exegetically here is that Paul keeps using this phrase, the Jew first and also the Greek. You'll hear that a lot in Romans. The Jew first and also the Greek. Paul puts all of humanity into two camps in this letter. Camp one is the Jewish nation. Abraham's descendants, the chosen people. God called Abraham out of idolatry. He promised to make them into a great nation. We know that nation is Israel and its people as the Jewish people. It was them to whom God had given his laws. This is really important in Romans. God made very clear to the Jewish people his will for them in his laws. The laws we might think of are those laws that are summed up in the Ten Commandments. Have no gods before me. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, etc. But they're also summed up in what Jesus called in the Gospels the greatest laws. And I think this is as important as any way to think about the law of God. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and to love your neighbor just as you love yourself. These are what Jesus says sum up the law, they're the greatest laws. The Jews were the only people out of all the earth in Paul's day who had received God's laws. They knew clearly from the Jewish scriptures how they were called to live before the one true God, Yahweh, who had revealed himself to them alone. It's going to be important for the rest of this chapter. The other group of people, the Greeks, it's really a, a colloquial term for everybody else. Other Bible translations call it Gentiles. Non-God-revealed people, people to whom God did not reveal himself the way he revealed himself to the Jews. In other words, you're in one of two groups. You've either received God's moral laws clearly in his scriptures as a Jew, or you have not. But Paul says that both groups are going to be judged by God. So now he's going to explain how's God going to do that. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. But you might be thinking after hearing this, how are Gentile people who never received God's law going to be judged by God? If you didn't have their 
his law. How, how will they get in trouble for not knowing what they were supposed to do, right? It's a good question. My third point, God will judge those who do not have his law by their inner conscience that he gave them. We'll look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, even in, in other words, even though they don't have the, the Ten Commandments in their Torah at home, but yet they have in their inner sense this idea of morality and right and wrong. Paul says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse them or even excuse them. On that day, this is a weird turn. Watch this, verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What Paul is alluding to is what philosophers call the moral law or natural law. It's this sense that all people have had throughout history that there is right and wrong. Whether it's the primitive tribes of Papua New Guinea hundreds of years ago or the secularists in the Netherlands today. All people, Paul says, do have a sense. Now, there are biochemical outliers and demonic outliers. But in the, the, those are exceptions that prove the rule. That of the vast majority of people who've lived, all people have a sense that there is what they should do and what they should not do. If I walk up to a complete stranger, we've used this illustration before, and I smack him across the face, it doesn't matter if I'm in America or if I'm in South Africa, if I'm in the desert, if I'm in the jungle, everyone who gets slapped in the face by me is going to want to slap me right back. <laughs> at, at, at least they're going to say, what are you doing? Right? We, we, this implies that, that we all have outside of us this standard that says you don't just go up to somebody and just slap them in the face for no reason. Everybody gets that. Everybody knows that. Where did it come from? Why do we know that? Paul says that God has written to some degree his law to love thy neighbor and treat the other as you want to be treated on everyone's heart. Of course, it changes to some degree from culture to culture. But in the hearts of men and women across the globe for centuries, cultures have embraced not stealing as a good thing, not lying as a good thing, caring for children as a good thing, respecting marriage as a good thing, honoring the elderly as a good thing, and not physically hurting someone for no good reason as a good thing. And so people who've never had God's law will be judged by a law they've never heard, but that it has been in their heart, what they've understood in their own hearts in terms of right and, law, right and wrong. A theologian named Francis Schaeffer from the 20th century talked about this idea. He called it the invisible tape recorder. Anybody read Schaeffer and remember the invisible tape recorder? The invisible tape recorder, today we might call it the invisible MP3 recorder, the invisible iPhone recorder. But it was this idea that Schaefer had, <coughs> that, that God had placed an invisible tape recorder on everyone's shoulder, everyone's neck. He tied it around their neck. From the day you were born until the day you were die, you walk around with an invisible tape recorder. And on the day of judgment, you come before God and he takes off your neck, the invisible tape recorder, and he rewinds it all the way to the beginning and he and you sit down and he presses play and you listen 
and you begin to hear you saying, how could you do that? That's, that's so wrong. You begin hearing, hey, that's awful. You shouldn't do that. You begin to hear, can you believe what they did? You begin to hear, I, w- I wouldn't do that. Basically, people will hear all the ways that they have judged, all the ways that their judgments have been expressed in their words about others, to others. And God is going to say, and how have you done with those same judgments that you've made about others? How have you done? This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 12 when he said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And then he says this in verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified. You will be acquitted, declared innocent. And by your words, you will be condemned. You will be declared guilty. But Paul goes further. He says in verse 15, their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. Listen, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. On that day of judgment, God says, people's consciences are going to be exposed, revealed, and they're going to testify against them or for them. Your own conscience is going to say, you violated me. You knew this was wrong, but you did it anyway. Your unconscious is going to say, you pushed through. This is what God says is going to happen on that day. Paul is saying that not only is there a tape recorder of your words, but of your own inner thoughts. In Luke 12, Jesus warned the disciples about being the kind of hypocrite that the religious leaders were. Their outward moral show was just that. It was a moral show. It was not really reflective of what was truly going on in their hearts, in their private thoughts and desires and actions. So Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Saying and acting like one thing, but inside doing another. And then he says this in verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Full disclosure, full transparency, on a level that only God with his x-ray machine could bring to pass. He is saying, it is all going to come out. There's probably varying degrees, if you're listening to me at this point, you've been able to follow. There's probably some varying degrees of reactions going on in your heart. For some of you, it just, it's just really frightening to think about the idea that everything is, all my dirty laundry is going to be laid bare before God. But for others of us, there's this encroaching sense that this just seems, well, if I could put it this way, unfair. Like, it just seems nitpicky. 
Doesn't God seem like a nitpicker, finger pointer, fault finder, this cruel grouch? Making you listen to everything you've ever done wrong, every conscience moment that you violated. What, what, what is he trying to do here? Let me tell you, if you're thinking that, what you are saying, that doesn't seem right. It's exactly the opposite. This is exactly Paul's point. God will do everything exactly right. He will not miss anything. He will not be unjust. He is going to be perfectly just. No one will be able on that day to accuse God of any wrongdoing. He isn't being cruel. In fact, that's the point. He will not be cruel. He will be just. He will do exactly what is right. course, what is God really trying to do here? He's trying to drive us to his cure. He's trying to cause us to treasure and embrace his cure, which isn't going to be found on that recording. It's not going to be found in how well I've done with my conscience. Do you see what he's doing? Next point. One more, one more, there it is. He will judge those who have his revealed law by that law. And of course, this is probably a little easier for us to understand now. And Paul is gonna say, hey, some of you guys are very religious and you've been saying to yourselves, I'm so glad I'm not like them. <laughs> I don't suppose there's probably uh, maybe even one person in this room who's saying that at this point. But just in case, Paul says, committed religious person, do not trust in your religious performance. Verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Sure, Paul says, you didn't cheat on your spouse, but what were you doing in your heart towards your spouse, religious person? You didn't steal your neighbor's property, but did you steal at work through laziness? Did you steal from your employee by not paying them fairly or treating them fairly? You hate idols. You abhor them, religious person, but do you rob temples? And Paul might be alluding to withholding the tithe owed to God for the Jewish people. We might think of that as well as withholding money from the needy when we have it and we can help them. 
for greed is idolatry. The point is, righteousness or wickedness occurs at the level of the inner person. And religious, outward, external rituals will not save us. This is what he's trying to say in verse 25. Circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's useless. Circumcision was this external sign of God's people, the Jewish people in Paul's day. You cut a piece of your body part off. I won't get into it to not be a distraction. If you don't know what it is, we can talk about it later. But the point is, it was a, a little bit of a piece of your flesh cut off as a sign of dedication to God. It had other implications, which I won't go into today. But it was a religious ritual. It was a sign that separated you from the ungodly. And Paul is saying, that external sign, if internally you're not honoring what it means, God's not going to be fooled by that. On the day of judgment, we might think of it this way. No one's water baptism it's going to declare them righteous before God. What does my wedding ring mean to my wife if I treat her cruelly, if I ignore her, if I abandon her, if I look at other images again and again without repentance? So Paul says it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified before God. And he tells us in verse 29 what the core problem is. A Jew is one, can we go to verse 29? A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The Holy Spirit needs to make an inward change that will result in external changes after. So God's x-ray machine is seeing into our hearts. It's not just seeing into our hearts. He's got another machine that sees into the future. And it knows that there's a day coming when we're all going to have to give an account before God for our lives. And he's saying none of us are going to be able to say on that day, I'm righteous in myself. None of us on that day are going to be able to say, oh, look at them. I'm better than them. So what do we take from this? I thought of a few things. First, we want to seek our neighbor's rescue. This is a call to come to grips with the reality of God's judgment. He really is going to judge the world. We don't sing about that much, but it's behind every song we sing. It's behind every Lord's Supper we take. It's behind every Lord's Day prayer that we pray. That God is going to judge the world. could use your prayers if you think about it. I'm trying to discern whether or not it be wise to spend a whole message talking about this day. Not to spend days creating morbid 
concerns and worries, but to look at it prophetically, to look at it predictively, to encourage you that it is really coming, that there are things that God has said in his word would take place that lead up to that day, and we have seen and, and do see those things taking place in different measures. But as I read through this chapter, I, I studied it. I felt that it was a, that there was an exhortation here for me to sober myself about this coming judgment that would cause me to really look at people afresh in light of that day and long for them and ask God for help to, to have opportunities to speak to them about Jesus. I think there's another implication here for us, which is just to walk away from the world's sweeping spirit right now and put away this invitation that's calling to us from all quarters to condemn people. If I had to classify the age we're living in right now in the United States, I, I almost would want to call it the age of the pointing finger. Brothers and sisters, it's so... I think repugnant to God to see us pointing the finger at others and saying, aha, look at them. But you cannot watch social media. You cannot turn on the news. You cannot get on Twitter. Something is happening to us when the need to look each other in the eye is taken away and we can just say whatever we want to say to one another. God's going to judge the liberal full of condemnation who says, we want tolerance and diversity for all people. There's no place for your religion here. And doesn't recognize the absolute backwardness of that statement. But God's going to judge the condemning conservative who says, can you believe how sexually perverse these kids are today? Disgusting. And then passes a longful, lustful glance at the person they're not married to. But feels better about themselves because they're of the opposite sex. So it's not quite so perverted. God isn't calling us to agree with the world that light is darkness and darkness is light and right is wrong and wrong is right. It's horrible and grieving. But I think he is calling us to be really careful about feasting on condemnation and one-upmanship and saying, I'm better. I'm better in our spirit. All of Romans 2 is saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. Your conscience is enough to condemn you on that day. What we should have is a spirit of grief for the lost. We should have a spirit of mourning for how sad the corruption and the division is in our culture. And we should have prayerful hearts and longing hearts to see God put things right and to see him bring as many people to faith in Christ and embrace his mercy before he does that. That should be our hard attitude. But that's hard. It's hard with our spouses. It's hard with our kids. It's hard with our parents. So how much easier it is to be anonymous on Twitter and tell someone off and wish them the worst.
God says, repent of that stuff. But I think also, joyfully, God wants us to put our hope today in our Savior and not in our law-keeping. This sermon is an invitation to rejoice afresh in the salvation we have, in the righteousness that we cannot make for ourselves that's been provided for us in Jesus Christ. The x-ray has been shown to us. The doctor has shown us how bad things are, but the doctor has not stopped there. He has given us the cure. A righteousness not our own through the shed blood of his son. That's where he wants us to put our hope. That's where he wants us to come back to again and again when our conscience accuses us, when we think about another failure from the past. See, on that day, brothers and sisters, there isn't going to be anything that can accuse you. Remember, we're in chapter 2. Paul's still trying to prepare people to embrace the cure. He's trying to prepare them to treasure the cure. But for those of us who have embraced the cure and already treasure the cure, there is no condemnation left. In fact, he'll say in a few chapters later, spoiler alert, who can accuse? Christ is the one who has died. Not only will Jesus be like he was with that adulterous woman and the Pharisees when he said, Woman, where are your accusers? They can't accuse you. They're all guilty themselves. No, he'll say, What accusations are left after I've taken every last one of them and received them on myself and paid for them all so that I could give you if I could put it this way, the biggest, happiest hug you've ever had and could ever imagine and welcome you into my kingdom safe and done with this awfulness forever. Forgiven, adopted, made righteous, made perfect. You are mine. I paid for you with my blood. No, your conscience will not win that day. Your past failures will not win that day. I have won the day on that cross for you. And more than this, the Holy Spirit is here. He's given us that circumcision of the heart. We aren't what we want to be, but we're not who we used to be. And we're not who we will yet one day be, but He is at work inside. And he will not give up until we are, in our own way, as beautiful as he is to his Father because of him. As we continue to trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us, as we continue to put our hope there and not in ourselves, he continues to transform us more and more into the image of his Son. That's what he's doing through all the trials and troubles and ups and downs. All praise to him for his unspeakable gift. Let's pray.